Well, good morning, everybody. Good to have you in church this morning. Um, for those who are visiting with us, uh, my name is uh, Sam Mawini. I'm the minister here, uh, but I'm not leading the service today. That's uh, Kevin's privilege, and it's great to get, have Kevin Hardigan with us. And uh, we, uh, he's doing an accredited preacher scheme, and uh, so we're uh, just delighted to have him as he leads through the service. We will be going to RTE later on, hence the nice flashy tie and uh, hair nicely cut and all that sort of stuff. Um, so this is the best I could do, really. Um, so uh, we're all neat and tidy, and we'll be heading to RTE shortly. But um, just to say a welcome to Kevin. I will do the announcements later on, and uh, we uh, pray that God will be with us as we worship together. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Sam, and thank you to all of you uh, for being willing to have me back again. It's a great pleasure to be here this morning. We're going to begin our worship by praying. O oh God, you pour out the spirit of grace and love. Deliver us from cold hearts and wandering thoughts, that with steady minds and burning zeal, we may worship you this morning in spirit and truth. Amen. We begin singing this morning with praise to the Lord, the Almighty. Prayer of confession, drawing on Psalm 25, let us reflect on the past week and call on the mercy of God. Lord, we praise you for your truth and your willingness to teach us. Be mindful of your mercy, O Lord, and of your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Do not remember the sins of our youth or our transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember us for your goodness' sake, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Turn to me. Be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. Relieve the troubles of my heart. Bring me out of my distress. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. My friends, through Jesus Christ, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. In Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. We know we can call on him, who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power which is at work within us. Amen. We continue, uh, we now turn at this point to uh, our text for this morning, which is in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, which is on page 1146, if you're reading with the Pew Bibles. So that's page 1146, and it's 1 Corinthians chapter 4. So this is Paul speaking to the church in Corinth. So then, men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear. 
but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. Now, brothers, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not take pride in one man over against another. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have become kings, and that's without us. How I wish that you really had become kings so that we might be kings with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession like men condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to men. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honoured, we are dishonoured. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Up to this moment, we have become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. I am not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers for in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I am sending to you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Some of you have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you. But I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing, and then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a whip, or in love, and with a gentle spirit? And this is God's word. So we'll keep that, hopefully, at uh, in our minds for later on in the service, but it's now come to the point in the service where I'm going to talk to the kids. So this is where the tech comes in. So it might go wrong on me. Hopefully it won't, right? And I've got really very, very advanced technology here in the pulpit. Uh, so if the kids would like to come to the front, they already are coming. This is brilliant. All right. And there we go. Guys, it's what? What's the date? February 17th. So what holiday was this week? Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day, yes. Did anyone get cards? Hands up. Who got a card? Oh, some people got a card. Sam got a card. If you didn't get a card, don't feel too bad. I didn't get a card. Oh. <laughs> Everybody's sick in my family. We passed Valentine's Day by. Um, so Valentine's Day, it's all about, what's it about again? Love. Love, yeah. 
Because, of course, Valentine was a great pacifist saint, and for some reason that ends up now in the 21st century with love. So it's about love and matters of the heart. And so what I thought is that we would talk about finding our hearts through direction. Now, we all have literal hearts, right? See? <laughs> we all have these uh, pumping hearts, yeah, that push the blood around our body. They're very important, right? And then we have the metaphorical heart that we're all able to draw, yeah? If you asked me to draw the real heart, I mean, I wouldn't be able to draw something so complicated. Maybe if you were doing junior cert biology, you'd learn it off by heart. But we're able to, to draw the metaphorical heart, right? So you get the difference between the two. When we say Valentine's Day is about matters of the heart, we don't mean the organ in our body that's pumping blood. We mean the things we love, that we're attracted to, that we are passionate about, yeah? What are some things you love? Do you love GAA? Kind of, right? Uh, does anyone here love soccer? Yes, yeah? Uh, does anyone here love music? Loads of people. What about dancing in the rest of the congregation? Definitely not dancing. Uh, me too. I am such a bad dancer. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, I, I, am, I may be the worst dancer in the world. So um, our hearts, I think, are like a compass that point us towards the things that we love. Okay, does anyone know what a compass is? Yeah, yeah, tell me, does anyone know how a compass works? Oh, that's true, I have one right here. It's a green hand, but you can see, points towards north eventually, yeah? So north is that way, guys, in case you didn't know. Um, does anyone know how this actually works? Like the physics of it? Uh, that's a pretty good answer. Are there any physicists in our congregation? People with a scientific background. Afterwards, you can explain exactly what it is. But as I understand it, I'm no physicist, but the molten core of the Earth in the heart of the Earth, there's uh, metal, and as the Earth goes around the sun, that metal moves, and that creates this reaction. So I'll show all the kids. It points towards north, okay? Yeah? So this is a big... Useful tool if you're trying to find your way, because it'll always show you the way home. Now, does anyone know what these are? Magnets, tiny little magnets. We're talking about the compass responds to the whole globe, and I've got these tiny little magnets. And see what happens when I put the, the magnets beside the compass? What happens? It moves with them. Or another way of putting it, the adults are going to have to take this on faith, is that the compass gets confused. The compass responds to the whole globe, but when you, when you draw forces close to it, very quickly the compass loses its way. You see? So it shows you where north is, but then I bring the compass in, and it gets confused. See? Yeah. Okay, we've got our heads nodding up here. I think that our hearts are like compasses because they can get confused as well. Our hearts point us towards God. One of the great saints in the church, Augustine, said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. But there are all kinds of little magnets in our life that pull our hearts away from the thing that we should love the most, which is God. So think about all the advertisements you watch on television that show you cool toys that you've never even dreamt of before. And then all of a sudden, you want those toys. Think about your friends in school. 
You want them to think that you're cool. You want them to approve of you. Our life is full. The adults can think of all the different kinds of small little magnets that pull your heart away from the true, true home. So there's all kinds of different ways that our hearts can get confused. And what I want to tell you this morning is that there's good news because there is a way to reset our hearts, to recalibrate the compass towards where it's meant to go. In the book of Proverbs, we read, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. And this is something that Jesus taught as well. So there are lots of ways that we can help our hearts to find their true home again. Can you think of some of them? The Bible is the absolute best place to go if you want to find your, your heart's true home again. And when, when the Bible is preached well, like it is in this church, it's very good. Yeah? Prayer, an excellent Excellent. Most important, every day if we pray. And when we come together in Christian community and sing, that can be great as well. And through acts of service, when we help others, like, for example, when we're generous with the things God has given us. But the most important thing to remember about this is that, see the wonderful piece of modern art there? Who's that that's on the... That's Jesus, right? There's no act that you can do to reset your heart. Ultimately, the way our hearts are reset is through God's Holy Spirit as a gift. It's grace that comes to us. So there are lots of ways that we can help make our hearts calibrated really finely for home. But the, the best way and the only way really is from Jesus, who is the source of our hearts, true love. So we have to pray to Jesus that he would, through his spirit, help us to find our true home. And that our heart will point towards the thing we should love the most, which is God and his glory. So will we pray together? Yeah? Lord, we thank you that even though we can sometimes get confused and end up wanting things we don't really want that aren't good for us, we know that through your spirit, you can reset our hearts. You can put our compass back towards home again. We ask this week that you would show us the ways in which we get confused and get lost. And at that moment, Lord, that you would allow us to trust in you and the goodness of your guidance. We can trust your judgment, Lord. It is always right. Amen. So we are going to continue by singing. Um, the song that we're going to sing is called Thy Word is a Lamp Unto My Feet. Hopefully you guys remember it. So let's sing together. So there's a supervised creche available for those up to the age of three downstairs and children and young people from the ages of four to 14. Uh, there's Sunday school and K2 for you guys to go to, which is upstairs. And I should be clear that the creche is just there if you should need it, but babies are entirely welcome to stay with us through the whole service. And I'll now invite Sam back up uh, to share the announcements. Thank you. Thanks, Kevin. Well, good to have you in church this morning. And again, you're very welcome if you're visiting with us. Um, it's great to have you as well. Sign our visitor's book. We have tea and coffee downstairs, and it'd be lovely to spend some time getting to know you as well. Uh, we'll continue looking at 1 Corinthians. I'm grateful for Kevin for preaching chapter 4, and we'll look at chapter 5 uh, next week. So do read that. Uh, Paul is really beginning to get to the uh, part of the issues that he has with the church there, uh, one of sexual immorality. Uh, so we'll be looking at that next week. 
Uh, if you do want to be prayed for, uh, then there's prayer ministry here at this little table. Um, again, just bring your concerns to those there, and they will pray for you confidentially. Um, we are doing the RTE service uh, after the, ser- the service here uh, from 1.30 until uh, 5 or 6, depending on how good we are and how quickly we get through it. Um, so we'll meet at 1 o'clock here in the foyer to get lists for all those who uh, are going and do continue to pray for us. Kevin and I are both suffering from colds, uh, so hopefully we'll be able to get through our services today. Um, yeah, just moving down International Cafe on Friday at 7.30, Art of Marriage course, uh, then on Monday um, at 7.30 here in the church. Uh, Caterpillar Kids, this is a new announcement here on Saturday the 9th of March uh, in the morning at 9.30, uh, they will be holding a first aid talk. I suppose that's for the mothers and babies, uh, about looking after your children, I suppose, babies and children run by the Order of Malta. This is limited to 12 places, and so you can contact Karen um, if you wish to attend, and the event is free. And also David Boyd has been helping someone in the congregation with painting and decorating, and additional volunteers are needed. Um, It says no special skills required, just that you would do what you're told, probably, and uh, David will supervise and look after you there, and his telephone number is there as well. Um, So I think those are all the announcements that I have, and I'll hand back to Kevin. Thank you. Uh, We'll continue our praise uh, with uh, the song from the breaking of the dawn. So the words... So as we turn to uh, consider this text, 1 Corinthians 4, in more detail, I'd love for you to keep the Bible open so that you can see where I'm going with my, with my argument. So that's on page 1146. And as Sam said, I'm feeling a little bit under the weather, so if it's okay with you, I'm going to take my jacket off because the paracetamol has not kicked in and I'm feeling very, very warm here. Um, so uh, we're going to look at this text, uh, 1 Corinthians 4, and um, I would love for you to pray with me as we do that. Um, of course, the sermon is, a, it's a very strange thing to write a sermon. It takes, uh, it takes an awful lot to stand up here and say, hey, this is what, this is what the Word of God means. Um, but when, when Presbyterian congregations get together and listen to the Word, it is all of us together who are doing that. Um, the, the sermon is, of course, all about the text speaking to you as an individual and to you as a congregation. And I, I firmly believe in the marrow of my bones that every single Sunday morning, God has a word for us, a, a word of good news. So I'd love for us to pray that we would have the ears to hear and that we'd be able to, to be blessed through, uh, through Paul's letter, which he wrote 1,900 years ago. Uh, it's an amazing thing that we're doing, gathering here and, and waiting on the Lord. So let's pray together. Lord, your word is trustworthy. In a world where nothing can really be taken for what it is anymore, we know that your word is true. We ask that through your spirit, these pieces of ink on a page, these black parallel lines would be transformed into living truth. 
soften our hearts and sharpen our minds so that we will be able to hear your good news as an individual and as a community this morning. Amen. So imagine that you had to tune 150 separate pianos. How do you go about doing it? One way is to start with the finest piano that we have and get that right and then work sequentially one by one by one by one all the way down until we get all 150 done. But if we approach it that way, trying to bring these instruments into harmony one after the other just with the instruments that we have, what we're going to end up with is chaos. Instead, what's needed is a single source of harmony against which all the pianos can be judged separate from how they are each in their own individual way disharmonious. So this is what a tuning fork does. Damien Jackson very kindly uh, lent me this uh, archaic piece of technology, and uh, let's see if it works. I don't know if it does work on wood. Uh, see? So it gives you the, the correct note, and then you're able to use that as your ultimate standard. And you can tune all of the different pianos to this one actually correct standard. Okay? That's what a tuning fork does. I, you know... You can see that I'm all out of sorts here. I'm forgetting even that we have PowerPoint. Uh, we go with the old-fashioned technology, not with the new stuff. So um, there's about 150 people in Adelaide Road, Presbyterian Church on a Sunday, depending on how you count it. So if we want to, as a community, be harmonious, there's one way to do it, which is to find the holiest person in this congregation. And then we all follow after that one man or woman and try and match our lives to their standard and then sequentially one by one all the way down to the uh, least holy person in the congregation. You might not know who the holiest is, but you probably have an, uh, your own opinion as to who the least holiest is. That's one way to get this congregation into harmony, but it's not the Christian way. The Christian way is to access the external source, the actual tuneful, harmonious sound that is Jesus' good news. And we have that. Uh, Jesus is our tuning fork. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, what Paul is talking about is the threat of disunity because the church in Corinth is tends to, to break out into little factions. And there is no harmony in this church. And what he's constantly telling us to do in this chapter is to, to go back to the source of harmony. Go back to the source of the sweet sound of the good news of the gospel, which is Jesus. Nothing but Jesus is Paul's prescription for the church in Corinth, and I think that it continues to be the prescription for the church in Dublin too. If we want to sing a sweet and compelling sound into the streets around this church building, we don't need to uh, be calibrating our voice against the holiest person in this congregation. We need to be listening for Jesus' voice and following that. So I want to go through this, uh, this chapter kind of stage by stage by stage, paying close attention to each verse, and then at the end, bring it together with some application and conclusion. That's our plan for this morning. So uh, there we go. We'll start with verses 1 to 4. This chapter flows seamlessly from chapter 3. The chapter division in the Bible happened only a couple of centuries ago. It's not in any way inspired, and it's sometimes really confusing. You know, I think about Romans 12 and Romans 13 is the classic case of this. We have this division between these two chapters, and it creates all kinds of poor theology. And here, I think if you, if you read 1 Corinthians 4 separate from chapter 3, you're misunderstanding. 
Uh, it's flowing through as one kind of harmonious argument. And we step into this flow of the argument in terms of what church leadership is meant to look like. And in verse 1, we find a beautiful summary of what church leadership is. In the world, leaders are people of expertise, education, and skill. In the church, they may be all of that as well. But Paul does not define leadership in those terms. Instead, he says that they are servants and they are stewards, as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Notice how subtle Paul is here. It's clear from the wider context that one of the problems that the Corinthian community has is that they have this tendency to elevate skilled leaders into positions of almost celebrity status. Remember the lines from verse 4 in the last chapter. One says, I belong to Paul. Another, I belong to Apollos. Are these men not merely human? So gangs were formed within the church, and they followed after these particular leaders, and disunity, disharmony was the result. So talking about leadership in terms of service and stewardship is a deflationary move for Paul. When he says that Christian leaders are servants, he's trying to downgrade their secular understanding of leadership. Do you see how he's doing that? And it's very important because it's, he intends to cut off any tendency to think about Christian leadership the way that we think about cultural or political or corporate or military leadership. But at the same time, notice who the leaders serve. They do not serve you. They don't serve the congregation. I mean, they do, of course. <laughs> Let's hope that they do. But they do that by, first of all, serving Jesus. When a person in leadership has a decision to make about how they act, they need to consider that the person they're answering to is not ultimately you or me, but Jesus. He is the Lord. So leadership in the church is servanthood, and they are not to be feted the way that we celebrate the leaders in the world, but the servanthood is to Jesus, not to whatever faction gains prominence or influence in a particular congregation. But there's a third angle to this great definition we find in verse 1. There might be more, but I wasn't keen enough to find them. Paul rules out grounds here for leaders. If you're an elder or if you're a teacher in any way or if you're a member of the committee in Adelaide Road, this is where you have to perk up. This is relevant to you. Paul rules out any grounds here for you to overestimate your position. The steward has an important role. The Lord delegates certain responsibilities to the steward, but the steward does not innovate the steward does not represent the Lord. The steward just carries out the orders that have been given to them. This is made explicit in verse 2. Faithfulness is the only and the final metric for whatever leadership is carried out well. So we're sorely mistaken if we think our leaders are meant to be impressive, charismatic, visionary, or any of the other entrepreneurial attributes that our contemporary neoliberal capitalist culture trains us to prize. Our leaders simply need to be people who are faithful to the glorious mystery that God invites us into friendship. That's it. This should be good news for those of us who are leaders. If only God is going to judge you, then, and the judgment is only on your faithfulness, then you should lead without fear or anxiety. It doesn't matter what people say. It doesn't matter how unpopular the opinion is. If you're faithful to Jesus, that's all that counts. He is a good judge. He is merciful. And therefore, you are emboldened to lead. And it's important to see how this little section ends. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. 
God's judgment is a thing that we're meant to look forward to, not a thing that's meant to be dreaded. It is good news. And I think it's appropriate at this point to note that verse 5, it can be read poorly if we take it to mean that no judgments are possible until the Lord returns. Church life can be frustratingly slow at times with subcommittees and with consensus building and with all kinds of dialogue that happens before we get to make any decision. But Paul isn't saying that you can't make any judgments at all. He's saying that all the judgments you make should be made in the light of the sure and certain knowledge that Jesus will decide which judgments were good and which judgments were wrong. Jesus will return and he will be, a, be able to determine what was right and what was wrong. So right at the beginning of this chapter then, we find an important set of truths embedded for us. We are not to mistake Christian leadership for the leadership of the world. We are not to mistake the leaders as our servants. And the leaders are not to mistake their responsibilities as divine sanction to just implement their own will. Okay? Following along so far? I'm making sense even though I don't necessarily feel like I'm making sense here. I'm sorry, this is very unprofessional from the front here, but... There is an epidemic spreading around Dublin of this, uh, this brutal man flu. Um, so we'll move on to verses 6 and 7. The question emerges, if you have been following along, your question surely has formed in your head. How do we know what faithfulness is? This is all well and good, Kevin, but how do we know what faithfulness is? If Paul says X and Apollos says Y, and indeed Kevin Hargan comes along 20 centuries later and says Z, how do we assess who to follow? Well, Paul anticipates this, and we find a wonderful piece of advice in verse 6. Do not go beyond what is written. Paul's advice is to take the scriptures and consume them, take them into your heart, all of them, so that they permeate your thinking and your acting, and then use the scriptures as the boundaries that mark out all the space of whatever is a possible decision. What are teachers to teach? Paul says, learn from us. Do not go beyond what is written. Why? Because when you do, you end up puffed up and judging others. Paul's concern in the earlier part of the chapter is to show us that only God judges rightly. And now he gives us the path to follow if we want to avoid judging wrongly. Use scripture as the frame, the boundary points of the canvas of the church, and paint your church life inside that boundary point. There can be many different ways to paint that picture, different techniques and different genres and different ways to go about the business of bearing witness to God's gospel. But stay within those boundaries. This isn't a counsel to conformity, it's a counsel to creativity, but it is disciplined creativity, like all true artistic endeavor. So let the scriptures be your norming norm, and you will avoid falling into the factionalism and the judgmentalism that tears the foundations out from underneath a church. Paul asks, what do you have that you did not receive? We're all on the same level when it comes to the mysteries that God has revealed. All of us as Christians have received the crucified Christ. The only distinction that will count at the end is whether we are faithful to the one who has gifted himself to us. So then we move on to verses 8 to 13, and we have this, this wonderful passage about foolishness. When Paul says, already you have all you want, I hear echoes from the passage that Sam preached last week. There in chapter 3, verse 21, we read, all things are yours. In the kingdom of God, the church at Corinth do not rely on their leaders for their inheritance, for their citizenship, for their status. 
The steward, after all, can't make you at home in the kingdom. Only the king does that. So when Paul says, how I wish that you really had begun to reign, we've got to read that in line with how they had chosen to follow the authority and the charisma of human leaders instead of focusing on the faithfulness, on faithfulness to Christ. If our eyes are opened to the inheritance that Jesus offers us, we would not be tempted by whatever sense of self-righteousness or progressive legitimacy or conservative credibility that comes from adhering to a human teacher, to a faddish theology, to a prevalent ideology. Paul reminds the church that at that moment, his leadership was held in scorn. He evocatively declares that he is on display at the end of the procession like those condemned to die in the arena. But even if you are made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings, we might add to your neighbors and your co-workers, to your family and friends. So be it for the sake of Jesus. When he confesses that he is seen as a fool, this resonates again with the passage from last week. In chapter 3, verses 18 to 19, we read, if any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. So, the final section. This part of Paul's argument is now drawing to a close. And he reminds them that he's not trying to manipulate them through shame. He is the spiritual father of the church in Corinth. And it is out of paternal tenderness that he admonishes. I suspect that there have been moments in all of your lives when you have received such warnings and it was to your benefit. As a young Christian, I was a, an adult convert to Christianity. And when I first... When I first encountered Jesus, when Jesus encountered me, I was so taken and captured by the truth of the gospel. I loved thinking about how the different parts of salvation fit together. And I had this zeal, like new converts often do, when I encountered other Christians. And I was dismayed when they didn't share my enthusiasm for theology. <laughs> In short, I was, putting it politely, argumentative but there's lots of idiomatic ways in, in Dublin that you'd be able to put that differently and more accurately. So God had given me a good mind, and under the guidance of servant leaders, it was getting fit. But I was using my skill to beat people up instead of to build people up. And I remember one conversation with a Presbyterian minister who told me that it was a great thing to be captivated by the beauty of the truth of the gospel, but it was a very bad thing if that passion was directed towards slamming others. He spoke to me with a tenderness, but it was also severe about how important it was that my intellectual study would be paired with prayerfulness. He directed me specifically that I needed to pray that I would be able to speak about the gospel with winsomeness. Because as it stood, every time I spoke about the gospel, I hurt people and turned people off. It was hard to hear these words. But they saved me and they saved those around me a great deal of heartache. Even more, by following that advice, I was opened up to a whole new enthusiasm for theology that was infectious instead of repellent. And as the years went by, people came to me and asked me for their take on, my take on things that they were pondering. And then that would spur me back into my study so that I found that those conversations accelerated into good things instead of crashing into bad things. 
This is just one example, and it's an admittedly pious one. You know, <laughs> it's, it's a very pious one of receiving such admonishment. But I'm sure that you can think of times when you have received the same gift. Words that were hard to hear at the time, but they were actually a profound kindness. That's what Paul is offering here. Note that he is not telling them these hard things for their own good, which is, I think, how 21st century people would justify it. The risk of that is that it licenses people who are self-righteous to go around dropping uninvited truth bombs into the lives of other people and pat themselves on the back for being the kind of people who tell it like it is. That's not what Paul is doing here. Instead, he's telling them the hard truth out of faithfulness to Jesus. And that's how to love them and how to serve them. Do you see how following that path is the way that you will do good to others? If you go after Jesus, first and foremost, nothing but, you will have great tenderness and great gentleness when you're engaging with others. But if you just self-righteously think that you're able to help other people, I mean, we all know people, like we've all been that person. So the nothing but Jesus method that Paul uses is incredibly important for us to pay attention to. It's only in Christ that Paul is their father. It's only in the gospel that he speaks words that might be so very hard to hear. We see that in verse 15. And in verse 16, we see that Paul's servant to Christ leadership is a template that we have available to us to mimic. Our call is not to be like Paul. Our call is to serve like Paul, which is to say to be focused entirely on Jesus. I propose that we can reject all the cutting-edge management principles that people try to sell us in the church, or the prevailing philosophical fads and the, the different things that are available for reorganizing churches. Instead, we should just inhabit a nothing-but-Jesus stance. And that's the imitation that Paul calls for us. That's his way of life in Christ Jesus. I think it's very good for us to think about Paul's claim to be father, because it illuminates from yet another angle how the church is different from other organizations and how Christian leadership is different from leadership in the secular world. Konosuke Matsushita, as you all know, founded Panasonic. Mahatma Gandhi established independent India. Anurin Bevan introduced the National Health Service. Tim Berners-Lee invented the World Wide Web. These are the verbs that we think about when we think about leadership. They give the impression of making something that wasn't previously there. Paul fathered the church at Corinth. Parenting is an entirely different kind of leadership. Parental language, procreative language, doesn't suggest the exertion of will to make something exist that didn't previously exist. It assumes the coming into being of a new entity from the mingling of what had already been there. Do you get what I'm saying there? The difference between invention and fatherhood, it's, I think, very important for us to understand. We are, of course, familiar with parents who treat their families like mini-institutions directed towards visions of future success, but we know enough to be skeptical of such parenting techniques. We call them helicopter parents because of how they hover over their children. In Denmark, they're called, called I love this phrase, curling forelder. You can forgive my pronunciation but it means curling parents. You know the sport, curling, that we see at the Winter Olympics? And they're called curling parents, alluding to this frantic sweeping away of even the tiniest obstacle that could be before uh, their children. 
So these super intense parents, they get support from every angle so that they're able to guarantee their child's success. But crucially, we know that this is dubious because they get to decide what success looks like. Paul is alluding to this in verse 15 when he talks about how irrelevant it might be if you have 10,000 guardians. The word is the same one, pedagogos, that we would use for tutor or trainer in Christ. 10,000 guardians, but no one to offer you parental love. The love that humbly receives the child as a gift, as a person, not a thing, a being with agency, a being with worth apart from anything that they're able to achieve. So the verses at the very end of the chapter read very differently when we consider them as forms of parental loving admonition. If they were uttered from the mouth of a tutor, we would recoil. And there is a signal that Paul means that. His harsh words are directed towards teachers who have forgotten that they're called to parental love and instead become helicopter tutors and curling trainers. In verse 21, he talks about a rod of discipline. Well, in Roman culture, you could identify the paedagogos, the teacher or the tutor, because they walked behind their students with a rod of discipline and whipped them on the legs if they disobeyed. So Paul is saying that as a loving parent, he is ready to show appropriate vigilance about the kind of influence that his children have fallen under. A child can't stand up to an arrogant and excessive teacher, but a parent can step in on their behalf. The parent has the authority, the power to intervene. Instead of a rod of discipline, he shall come in love with a gentle spirit. The words may still be hard to hear, but they will not be designed to direct the Corinthians towards Paul's agenda. They will be shared so as to direct them back towards Christ's agenda. This is how we know that they are loving. Not because they sound gentle, but because they point you towards the source of all gentleness. So I want to finish by, hopefully, drawing us towards an application. Sorry. This all applies in a very direct way to the contemporary church. It may not be the case in this congregation, but generally we are beset on all sides by the threat in contemporary Christianity of factionalism. We have different words for the different groups that we arrange ourselves into, evangelical, reformed, liberal, conservative, seeker-sensitive, scripturally-based. It doesn't matter what the words are. We have different topics that we feel are worthy of splitting over. Gender, sexuality, worship style, sacraments, the list goes on. We decide that some action is the right course to take. We find people who think like us. We make a gang. And then, invested with our own self-righteousness that comes from being right, we go to war against everyone who isn't part of our gang, who is therefore wrong. The heart of this dynamic, which repeats again and again in contemporary Christianity, is judgment. We step into the role Christ has kept for himself. We decide to go beyond the limits set by scripture and insist that the matters that we are most passionate about are now the most important things. My friends, churches end this way. The witness of the church is destroyed this way. The only issue that is primary is clear in this text, faithfulness to Jesus. That's a path, not a destination. It's a path marked out for us by the scriptures. All these secondary issues matter. I mean, I'm a theologian. I spend my life studying the secondary issues. You can hold particular positions in those secondary questions with tremendous conviction. 
and with profound passion. That is a good thing to do. But you cannot allow that zeal for the truth to turn into a hatred for those who disagree. What do you have that has not been given? Why are you able to say that your neighbour does not belong because your neighbour does not agree with you? Your neighbour is not called to agree with you. Your neighbour is called to follow Christ. Resist all temptations to create cliques and gangs and factions within the church. Make it your business to befriend those who are different. Make it your spiritual practice to enter into winsome theological discussion with those who disagree with you. I say this as a convinced evangelical Presbyterian who works for the Jesuits, a Catholic order that has, through history, murdered quite a few Presbyterians. We should make friends with those who disagree with us. And that brings me to my conclusion. It is easy to hear my application as a call to tolerance. That would be a mistake. While I have no problem with being tolerant, I think it is far too small a goal for Christians. To tolerate something doesn't mean to endorse it. It implies disagreement. The language of tolerance actually functions. And you can see this in the, in the world outside when we're called to tolerance. What we actually end up with are silos. We just agree not to intervene in each other's lives. To tolerate something is just to say, you're over there, you go do what you want to do, I won't bother you, and vice versa. We're called to something else. We're the people who are called to love our enemies. We're not told to leave other people alone. We're told to go and live in love with them. So Paul, I think, pushes us beyond tolerance here. We want more than that. We are the people who love our enemies. So we want to be in relationship with people with whom we disagree. Paul does not teach that we should resist factionalism and tolerate those who disagree with us because we are so good. He argues that we should resist factionalism and reach out to those who disagree with us because we are not good. Let us go back to the most astonishing verse in this passage, in verse 13. Look at this verse. It is amazing. It reads like the Sermon on the Mount at the beginning. When someone slaps you on the cheek, offer him the other one. And when someone slanders you, answer them with kindness. And then Paul says, we have become the scum of the earth. The trash heap of humanity. Now, I should be clear that the word in Greek is not trash heap. It's not garbage. It's not refuse. That all sounds like domestic waste. What Paul uses is something that's bodily waste. Literally, it is the waste that you have to scrape off your body. So I'll leave it to you as to what is the exact word that he uses to describe you, the church of God. I'm not messing when I tell you that Paul says hard things to these Corinthians because he loves them. Ultimately, the, the unity that Paul is calling for in this chapter is not sourced in earthly dynamics, like having a shared, uh, a shared vision. It might be good, but big deal. It's not shared even in sharing the exact same doctrine. That might be great, but it's, it's not very realistic. It's founded on a much more secure cornerstone, the crucified Jesus. The cross, remember, was outside the walls of Jerusalem. Golgotha was literally a landfill. Jesus was crucified on a trash heap. You are not adopted into the family of faith by your father God because you have the correct doctrine. You are not ingrafted into the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because you hold the right opinion. You are not a member of Adelaide Road Presbyterian Church because you are a good and decent person. You, on your merits, are like me, 
utterly unqualified to receive the gift that you have been given. You are here because you are called by the one who became the scum of the earth, who died on the trash heap of humanity. How can we hope to attain a status in this world that is worthy of honor without forsaking faithfulness to the one who was evicted from civilization, who was tortured as a traitor, who was murdered as a criminal? When we see the evidence of disunity, which is not the same as the evidence of diversity, diversity is a good thing, but when we see the evidence of disunity, we know our heart's compasses need to be recalibrated. We know we need the tuning fork of the scriptures, God's unique testimony to the goodness of his promises, the faithfulness of his promises made to us. Unity is not a strategic aim of the church. Leadership is not a license to innovate. The call to be one with your neighbor, especially the one whose views you disagree with, whose views shame you, flows directly from the cross. Our unity is born from our solidarity with the crucified Christ. Our servanthood is directed uniquely towards that leader. How well we lo love each other shows us how well we understand grace. So let us pray together. Lord, your church is unlike any other organization, institution, or movement. Men and women, slave and free, Gentile and Jew. In this room, think of the diversity of tongues and cultures, the backgrounds that are so diverse, all brought together into one body. And there's diversity in the body with, with different organs and different limbs that have different functions and different purposes. But the body without unity is a tragedy. So we pray that to whatever extent we have unity, may it be grounded in our faithfulness to you and our commitment to your gospel. May we not go beyond what is written and may we keep that primary thing as the sole focus of our collective life. May we have nothing but you, Jesus. Amen. Now, I am exhausted. I'm sure you're exhausted too. <laughs> Thank you very much for sticking with me on that. We, we made it. And we're going to continue. Uh, we're going to take up our offering. And of course, the offering is for the work that goes on here in this church, but also across the island and across the world. The Presbyterian Church in Ireland has uh, missionary activities across the globe. And this uh, offering goes to support that. If you're a visitor or a guest here, if you're not prepared, feel free to let the plate pass by. And while we take up the offering, we're going to sing appropriately, Jesus be the center. Let us pray over that offering. In Psalm 116 we read, What shall I return to the Lord for all his bounty to me? I will give what I have promised in the presence of all God's people. Lord, we ask that you will accept these offerings and that they will help to serve your kingdom agenda here in Adelaide Road and far around the world. May we feel this for what it is, some of the best, juiciest, wisest spending of our hard-earned money we can possibly make. Amen. Now this morning, we are gathered to praise God and 
of course, across the globe, people are gathering in similar fashion. So we'll take this opportunity to pray for the needs of the world. Lord, as we gather to praise you, our hearts are full of concerns for our neighbours, for ourselves, for our planet. We bring them to you now. We thank you for this opportunity that the congregation has to go down to Donnybrook and to record a radio and television broadcast. We pray for Sam and for the music leaders as they uh, guide the delegation through their, uh, their tasks, but far more than the particular details of recording this afternoon. We pray for the transmission. We pray that when this goes out on air, that it will be a great bam to the souls of those who know you and love you, but who are trapped at home on Sunday mornings and only have the TV worship or the radio broadcast for their sense of fellowship. And more fundamentally, we pray that Sam's preaching, the prayers and the singing, that it would move people to encounter you having never before known your goodness. Lord, we pray boldly that this would be a great missional endeavor. Amen. We also pray, Lord, for those in this congregation who are either sick or who are at home for whatever reason and unable to join us. We pray for Annie and for Jack, who are both unwell. We pray for John Reed and John Thompson, who are unable to, to be here this morning. And we pray especially for Jonathan and his wife, Tuva, who are living in Sweden. Jonathan is battling leukemia. Lord, we pray for complete and total healing in that case. And thinking about those who are sick, Lord, prompts us to remember the nurses who have been prominent in the news in recent weeks. We thank you for their service and the service of all those on the front line of medical care up and down the country in GP's offices right up to uh, the most advanced super hospitals that we have. Lord, we pray that they would be honoured appropriately by our society. And we as Christians pray for the nurses and doctors who in the last year have faced a very changed situation legally around questions of bioethics and the beginning of life. We pray particularly for those nurses and doctors who feel a need to act out of conscience, to stand away from developments that have taken place. And we pray, Lord, that their that their, uh, that their strong spine, that their firm commitment to, to the truth of things would be honoured not just by you, we, we thank you that they, that they will be honoured by you, but Lord, that it would also be honoured by our society. Lord, in the years ahead, we are going to need many more nurses and doctors who are both compassionate and who know the truth. We pray, Lord, that that is something that uh, you would raise up in our churches medical professionals who know how to care in birth and in dying. And Lord, speaking of birth and dying uh, this week, we also, uh, some of us would have been particularly alarmed to read about uh, the latest front in terms of climate breakdown with the mass extinction of large numbers of insects. We, we know that you must have a, a peculiar fondness for insects because there are so many different varieties and species. But in our care of your good creation, we have obviously 
engaged in practices that are doing harm to your creatures. Many of us are shamed by the commitment of teenagers in their uh, school strike for climate change. Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see what is happening around us. It seems very difficult to put our heads around the problems that we face in terms of the environment or how we might make any kind of contribution to a solution. So we pray through your spirit for consolation and inspiration. Lord, show us the way to be, to fulfill the Genesis mandate of being cultivators of your good creation. We take a moment, Lord, to bring our own concerns to you. Gracious God, accept all these prayers offered in Jesus' name and give us now the strength to wait patiently for your answer and to live faithfully in response to your call. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. So we will close our worship with Come People of the Risen King. So the words will be on the screen. And if you're able to stay for tea and coffee afterwards, please do. It'll be downstairs. And yeah, so let's finish with Come People of the Risen King. Addiction together. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Thank you very much.